Listeners, this is Dan Cavallari, tech editor at Velo News, and I am coming at you from my half-finished basement among the raw lumber and stacks of drywall. And today, we've got a we've got a great topic because usually, when we're when we're talking on the Velo News Tech Podcast, you know we're a bunch of roadie nerds, so we're talking about road bikes uh, and all that stuff. And today, we're going to talk mountain bikes. And now, I've been a mountain bike bike biker a long time, longer than I've ridden road bikes, actually. And I've, I've grew up in that era where, you know, you, you jumped on a mountain bike and it, it the suspension moved. It, it did a lot of the work for you, even when it was rudimentary and it was just elastomers and side forks. It, it really, I can, I can't count how many times I've been saved from going over the bars because of my suspension. So, uh, and, and I think anybody who's ridden a mountain bike can really attest to that. Even if you're just, you know, a, a occasional mountain biker. Um, but I wanted to get at the heart of what really goes into designing suspension? Because I, there really is a lot to it. There's a lot of uh, magic that happens within your fork. I mean, I think we all see the the outside of a fork and we, we, we don't really understand what's going on inside. So to get at that, I wanted to talk to somebody who's probably done more suspension design in this bike industry than anybody I can think of. Um, and he's, he's got a great title. We just talked about this. Uh, so today, Dave Weagle is on the show. And he's uh, a self-proclaimed bike industry creator guy, which I love. I think that's a great title, Dave. Um, <laughs> so, Dave, thanks, thanks for coming on the show to talk, uh, to talk suspension with me today. And, Dave, for those of you who don't know his name, uh, Dave, is, Dave has worked for a lot of bike industries and founded a lot of companies. And chances are you've ridden something he's created. Uh, he's, he's, his name comes up a lot uh, when we talk about suspension. And so he's, he's really a great guy to talk to about how this all works because it's, it is pretty complicated, but it doesn't have to be when you walk into a bike shop to buy your bike. So basically today we're going to talk about what are suspension kinematics. What does that term even mean? And why does it matter when you're buying a mountain bike? Dave, let's start really broad here. Uh, what are suspension kinematics? All right. Well, first off, Dan, thank you so much for having me. And hello, Velo News listeners. It's nice to join you today. It's uh, bitter cold out here, but luckily we're surrounded by uh, heated walls. Ah, (laughs) Indoor riding weather, yeah. Keep us insulated. (laughs) Yeah, perfect riding weather. Yeah. Um, So kinematics is really the study of linkages. It's a it's a sub, I guess, a subset of mechanical engineering. And the reason that that is, I guess, brought up and and important in mountain biking uh, is because Typically, mountain bike suspensions, which are dynamic, uh, really dynamic mechanisms or mechanisms developed to to really deal with dynamics surrounding how humans interact with the bicycle, employ kinematic linkages to actually achieve an end result. So as a consumer, what do I really, and this sounds like it's it's basically, you know, an actual level of physics. Do I need to know physics in order to go buy a, buy a mountain bike? What do I need to know specifically about kinematics to find, to, to really consider myself educated enough to go out and, and look at mountain bikes? Really nothing at all. I think, I mean, the reality is the kinematics are a very specific subset that I think few people have a complete enough grasp up, grasp on to really, you know, develop the products that we ride. But as a consumer, you don't really need to know much about it at all. I mean, I think the the bike companies try to use marketing to talk about, you know, what these different things do and to various levels of accuracy or inaccuracy. Um, but the buzzwords and all that, they, they, none of that stuff really matters when you start turning the pedals and getting out on the trail. Um, I, I think the end result and the real ride quality 
associated with you know with the the products you're writing is is really what you care about as a customer. Um, and my biggest you know my biggest um, suggestion for anybody going out to buy a bike is the same advice that a guy at bike shop in Boston gave me when I went to buy my first good bike. Go get on some bikes and start riding them. Mm-hmm. Figure out what you like and make a decision from there. So you don't need to know anything about suspension kinematics. This has been the shortest Vel News Tech podcast in history. Thanks for joining us. Uh, <laughs> easy enough. <laughs> well, so I mean, really, if you're going to buy a bike, you don't need to know anything about kinematics or really any of that stuff to make a, a great decision right, right. to purchase. I mean, that's you know, in the end, all the kinematics, all the dynamics on the back end, all the damper development and damper tunes, whether the thing stays in one piece or not. No, that all comes out in the ride. Mm-hmm. And that's the totally the reality of it. I think, you know, keeping that focus of the bottom line of the whole exercise is really to build product that is making people happy, right? And right. you know, does does what you want it to do out on the trail, right? Gives you traction to make that climb. Sure. Helps sure. you make some corner that you might not, you know, keeps the front end from not washing out. Mm-hmm. You know, literally gives your tire more traction. Um, maybe lets you have a conversation with your friend while you're riding and not worry about, you know, eating shit into some brush on the side of the trail. Right. Like that's really what it's all about. And it's a, the science of it. You don't need to know the science to, you know, to, to buy the bike, mm-hmm. but, um, it is an interesting subject that we can dive into. And, and that's, and that's really, I mean, we're, if you're listening to this tech podcast, you're probably a bit of a tech nerd. So you do want to know the science of it. Um, and so, you know, this is, this is where we're going to get into some of the terms we hear kicked around a lot in the bike industry. Um, things like, you know, anti-squat and anti-rise, we're going to touch on that in a minute, but before we get into that now from a designer's perspective, uh, you know, kinematics is essentially the way the suspension moves, right? What are, what are some of the unique limitations involved with developing mountain bike suspension compared to say a motorcycle or a car? Uh, why, why is it so difficult? Yeah, I mean, the biggest challenge with mountain bikes is there's two major problems um, with a mountain bike, and, and they really are a perfect test bed for building other two-wheeled vehicles like motorcycles. And the reasons are the center of gravity on a mountain bike is very, very high for up, up, up from the ground. Um, if you think about it, the rider's weight is just a huge percentage of the, the actual mass of the bike, right? And because your weight is the, the biggest percentage of the mass, um, you're and you're perched up high on the bike between two wheels that are very close to each other front to back um whatever happens with that center of gravity with your with your you know your body weight really affects what happens on the bike so all the effects of braking all the effects of acceleration uh the effects of you leaning forward or backward or side to side as you corner they're all magnified in a mountain bike um or even on a motorcycle you have a much heavier engine that's that's really close to the ground and your wheelbase is quite a bit longer on a motorcycle. And in a car, if you think about it, I mean, you're hardly even a component of the weight of the vehicle. I mean, it's just, you're a tiny fraction and you have a giant engine that's super heavy and a transmission that are very low to the ground. So it, they, they each have different, um, different requirements, um, design wise, but you know, on a, on a bicycle, it's, it's extremely, extremely difficult. The other challenge of a bicycle is, the human, you're the engine, you're the power, right? So typically on a motorcycle, you know, if you want to go faster, you just twist the throttle or buy a boat bike with bigger displacement. Um, on a mountain bike, it's a lot harder. You know, you're, it's, it's, it's kind of tough when you got to yell at yourself and say, oh, you got to push harder to go up this hill. Right, right. <laughs> Sometimes yourself says, self, I don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's me on every climb. I don't know. Sometimes, what is this sometimes stuff? <laughs> exactly. So you have to get very 
careful with how much, you know, how you use your energy and you just, your margin for error is very, very small. Right. And the other thing too, and I, I've always wondered this is, um, you know, if, if you're pedaling a bike, your center of gravity is always changing because your legs are constantly moving and your legs are actually your stabilizers, right? Yes. Yep. So how does yep, that- that's a, that's an absolutely, it's a very important piece of it. It's actually, you know, that, that realization for me was one of the reasons why, why DW link was invented in the first place. Like after I started, you know, you're, you're, you want to talk about anti squat and anti rise, and that really falls into that equation, really like saying what's happening with the rider's weight, yeah. what is really going on with all this mass, right. how's it affecting what the suspension is really doing and how do we combat that if we want to at all. Right. Um, I can't help but notice you mentioned DW link and I also can't help but notice that your initials are DW. Uh, that's curious. Can, that's you, true. can you tell me what DW link is? Yeah, uh, sure. So I mean, I, I, the, the, the name itself was given by a, by a friend who, um, was working as a project manager in a mountain bike company and, uh, and, uh, they had to go to press with this de- design I had developed. And, uh, he basically was said, Oh, there's no more time. We're going to call it DW link. And, uh, the reason that the, the design exists uh, and, and where it really came from, um, I had developed one of the first written uh, written papers on how to calculate anti-squat in a chain-driven vehicle. And really the, the, the key part of it was, was characterizing that versus travel and looking at leverage ratios versus displacement or uh, even braking squat versus displacement in the past had been, you know, had been done. I'd seen it. Those are things that I learned. And I said to me, said, well, you know, realize that I'm starting to understand anti-squat is the most important. It's the biggest force we can manipulate in the bike. Um, so how do I, how can I characterize that and, uh, understand it, you know, in, in relation to the vehicle and how can I then use it tactically to actually do something useful and, uh, characterizing me against travel, uh, was a, was a big part of that. And that's where these anti-squat curves come from. Mm-hmm. Um, so anti-squat is a real simple thing. So, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of you guys who are listening, uh, are probably doing exactly what I'm doing to Dave right now is just sort of nodding and pretending like I understood what he just said. Uh, so let's, let's take a step back and sort of, uh, sort through some of that information. Now, uh, Dave, you, you created DW link. And if you guys are shopping for bikes, you probably have seen DW link on, on like pivot bikes, for example, uses DW link. Um, and one of the, the, the things is, uh, about DW link is it, it hopes to address or it, it it, it, it does address things like anti-squat uh, and anti-rise. Let's talk about those terms. What is anti-squat for starters? So anti-squat is the, the suspension's ability to resist compression due to the effects of load transfer or weight transfer. They're, they're the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially, you're, you have a center of mass. It's, very, it's up high. You accelerate the bicycle. You start to push on the pedals. You're your weight doesn't want to move. It says, I, I'm not moving yet. Something needs to urge me forward. And as you start, as the bike starts to move forward, your weight has to go with it. And part of that weight transfers rearward to the rear wheel. So if you think about it in terms of riding terms that we all know, right, you ride, a, if you're riding just on flat ground, let's just say, you know, you're pedaling on flat ground around, not really accelerating, not decelerating. It's you roughly have about 60% of your weight on the rear wheel, 40% on the front. You ride a wheelie, you now have 100% of your weight on your rear wheel. Mm-hmm. You're at an endo, you've now transferred 100% of your weight to the front wheel. So the function of that weight transferring back and forth, that's called load transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we call it load transfer because we're measuring the load at the tire. So 100% of your weight is measured in load on the front tire when you're doing an endo, endo, right? 100% of your weight is measured on the rear wheel when you're doing a wheelie 
uh, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. So anti-squat can be used to counteract the effects of that load transfer. And anti-squat is really just an internal chassis force. And to back it up of why, let me give you a little bit more, a little bit more on the back end of this, why you, you would choose anti-squat or why it even exists. Anti-squat's a well-known function. It's been exist. People have understood that it existed in vehicles, you know, for a hundred years or something. Mm -hmm. um, it's been around for a long time. It's not a, and even in the, you know, in the motorcycle world, I think, um, I, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to guys that worked in, you know, say World Superbike and stuff like that. And they understood that anti-squat existed and they even go so far as to tune it in some ways, like say on a super speedway, it would be moving the swing arm pivot up or down, mm -hmm. but they were never really calculating it or trying to understand it in, in beyond just, Hey, this is this neat thing that we can play with and might be able to do something useful. Sure. Um, the reality is there are a few ways to counteracting load transfer is really the the goal um and the reason that that's a goal is because as we went as myself and, and plenty of other people have worked through it over the years said all right well we want to give the rider the best experience possible that means you know uh, when you're the motor on the bike having the most efficient you know the most efficient use of that energy that you work trained so hard to develop and you know you ate those nice carbo laden meal to to process into energy mm -hmm. um I'm good at that part. You know, you, <laughs> me too. Great. <laughs> um, you know, that, that, that's something that it, it's, it, it's a lot easier when you're just turning the, turning the dial, turning the throttle on a motorcycle. Right. And it, it makes sense why this wasn't something in motorcycles that immediately came to fruition. Right. We just turn the throttle harder if you want to go faster. Right? right. But the motorcycle guys realized pretty quick that varying load in the tire was the biggest enemy to traction possible. Mm. So the, 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 the more, Tire load fluctuates, the less traction you have and the faster, the slower you go on a, on a road course or a motocross bike. Mm -hmm. And so the tire guys started to realize pretty quick, like chat, wow, we could, this is something we can manipulate. And they manipulate that in a couple different ways load at the tire. They can use a damper. They can change the damping settings. They can change your spring settings. You can use anti-squat mm -hmm. or, you know, the other choice is really, you just do nothing. Right. That's always an option. Yeah. Well, say the challenge with the challenge with um, all of the other options other than anti-squat is anti-squat is very specific to the acceleration event uh -huh. when you really want to deal with a big component of the load transfer that's happening mm -hmm. and a very well known and very um, a very stable event compared to say hitting bumps right. at low speed or high speed compression and so when you try to use damping or some other some other device or spring or something or just do nothing you end up with greater tire load fluctuation during other events like climbing like going over bumps than you would by just using the anti-squat so it's it's just a, a better fit solution for one major problem especially a major problem for mountain bikes sure so to, to summarize that a bit uh anti-squat uh essentially is that feeling when you start pedaling and and you're you know that you can feel the suspension compress the anti-squat is is something you can manipulate to sort of lessen that that squishing of the suspension correct yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's literally instantaneously balancing out that, that suspension compression. Mm -hmm. And it's the best part about it is it, it's off. As soon as you stop putting load in the pedals, it's gone. Right. Right. It's immediately reactive. Yeah. It's instant, so uh, now, which is fantastic. So that's balanced against something else we hear a lot, which is anti-rise. Can you explain quickly what anti-rise is? Yeah. Anti-rise is just, um, it's the same thing under braking. Um, so, um, actually in, so 
let's let's talk a little bit about i'm going to bring this into a little bit more we talk about this in a little deeper a little deeper depth because with breaking we've had so many people and so many perverted notions of what is going on or what is being measured so i, I want to talk about this in terms of the cartesian graph we actually measure anti-squat and anti-rise on mm -hmm. so if you think about a, a regular old graph you know x and y right yeah if on the x-axis you have displaced travel rear wheel travel we'll just say we'll say vertical wheel travel for the okay. conversation sure um anti-rise is sim is essentially when you pull the rear brake and the rear of the bike won't extend but the thing that's different is in the front it's the opposite because the center of gravity is moving in different directions with respect to you know expected motion so the reality, well, so it's anti-rise has really mostly been discussed for the front. You don't really hear it in terms of rear suspension. So you, you're asking me about a term that's almost really specific to front suspension geometries, um, where, um, where we would really not normally talk about um, under braking, we have, you know, we have two different components. Anti-rise under the under braking in the rear would essentially say, hey, we're, you know, we're hitting the brake and somehow this thing is not rising so in reality that's actually pro squat um it's a different it's a different um syntax okay. the bottom line is yeah i think i know where you're at what you want to know yeah and so rather than get stuck in what the syntax you're asked about ask me okay <laughs> the bottom line is when you pull the rear brake there's a, there's three options yeah you can have you can let the thing just fully extend you can do nothing literally it's just had no braking reaction whatsoever so there's no braking reaction the center of gravity can just pitch forward at will uh -huh. and the rear suspension can extend okay you can have some amount of pro rise where you're actually hitting the brake and it's forcibly extending the rear end to, ex to, to extend plus the reaction of your load, the, the, your, your center of gravity moving forward. So you have this double situation where you're not only letting the rear suspension extend under braking completely, but you're also forcibly extending it. Um, a good example of any, for any of you that ever rolled the old, rode the old Schwinn four banger bike, um, that bike was like a pogo stick. You'd pull the rear brake and it would literally lift you right up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is almost an outlier. I don't think right. I ever rode any other bike like that. Um, and then what every mountain bike essentially uses today, or the vast majority, is some sort of uh, some sort of uh, some sort of situation in the back where we're actually forcibly compressing the rear suspension uh, during braking events. So that's called braking squat. Mm -hmm. um, so we're actually forcibly compressing the rear suspension with some amount of uh, some amount of linkage force to keep to basically keep the center of gravity from pitching forward under braking. And what that does is it, if you can think about this, as your center of gravity moves forward, the load on the rear tire decreases, the load on the front tire increases. So it upsets that balance of, tra of traction front to rear. Mm -hmm. So it's actually really beneficial to have some amount of, some amount of braking squat in the rear, which is contrary to probably most bike marketing, even despite what their products are even doing. Mm -hmm. And contrary to maybe what you might imagine at first, um, as a rider. So it sounds like one of the difficulties in suspension design is sort of balancing those two concepts almost against each other, this anti-squat and anti-rise. Uh, is that, does that sound accurate? No, they're separate. They're I mean, separate. yeah, I mean, to me, they're totally separate. They're, they're, they're aspects of the performance that we tune totally independently. Well, at least within the designs that I work on. Mm -hmm. Um, to be honest, Dan, I mean, braking is, uh, my rule of braking is don't do anything totally stupid. Like, yeah. I mean, if you're really relying on your rear tire to do the majority of your braking, mm -hmm. you're doing, you're riding in such a manner that it probably doesn't matter anymore. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, 
You're saying I'm better I mean, if you're still. really going that slow, that you have to use your, you're, you're using your rear brake to do the majority of your braking, right? Like, uh, I mean, you're not at the limits of traction. It's not going to be a problem. Sure. So, I mean, realistically, we want to avoid having the complete full extension situation where your braking force is pitching you over the bars. Mm-hmm. And we really like to avoid the situation in the rear where you have anything less than some amount of braking compression. Sure. Um, and all of the popular designs today is, uh, that I know of at least um, satisfy that satisfy that uh, requirement in some okay. way. Okay. So taking a step back from some of the more complicated terms that we're, we're throwing around here, uh, a lot of us that are going to go buy a mountain bike today, if, you know, say I, say I used to ride mountain bikes back in, I don't know, 1996, right? And then I'm, or 1998. And then I come back today and I go to the bike shop and I'm like, all right, I'm going to test ride some of these, these new mountain bikes. One of the things that's going to come become pretty clear quickly is that suspension designs have changed immensely, immensely over the years. And really even more sharply, I would say in the last two to four years, um, to the point where, you know, I remember riding downhill bikes, you know, in, in the early 2000s thinking, you know, 160 millimeters of travel was crazy and you would never want to pedal that uphill. But now we've got these, these enduro and trail bikes that have 160 mil of travel and you could very, not easily, but you can definitely pedal them uphill. Um, let's talk, let's talk about what's changed. How, how, and why did these, these changes happen and why does the suspension now, uh, work so well, both up and down the hill? Well, I think the the bottom line is that every bike company at this point is employing some sort of some sort of concept that you know uses anti squat to balance acceleration forces and accelerate and the you know the the detrimental effects of that um, you know in terms of load transfer and stuff and uh, the shock companies have really gotten to a point where they're no longer putting huge amounts of low speed compression damping into the shock uh, to comp- try to compensate for the same thing that the anti squat can do and at that point. Uh, that allows the damper to actually function a lot better on the descent as well. And uh, that's, I think that's really the biggest change. I mean, in one way or another, um, most, most products are trying to employ similar things. I mean, just look at single pivots and FSR pivots and stuff and look at where the front pivot, that, that forward pivot has gone from 2005 to now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it, we're talking 100 millimeter difference in height sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty, that's a massive difference. Right. Can you explain just for, for the listeners who aren't as familiar with suspension, uh, what exactly a damper is and what it does? Yeah. Damper is just a device. That's, it's a mechanical device. that sole function is to turn, turn mechanical energy into heat and dissipate that heat to the atmosphere. So in a, let's give an example in a, in a rear shock, uh, what is, what is the physical damper look like and, and, and how does it operate within night within a rear shock? What does it look like? <laughs> it looks like a tube, I uh-huh. guess. It looks like a, a round thing uh-huh. that's attached to your swing arm. Yep. Um, I guess it doesn't look like a tube from the outside. It just looks like a round thing, mm-hmm. a cylinder, and uh, has some fancy writing on it probably. Probably has some levers attached to it because those sell. Those are important in the marketplace. <laughs> levers really make it better. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't really matter what the levers do uh-huh. necessarily, but they're there, and you can feel the difference when you turn it. That's absolutely important. I know uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. So the, the most rudimentary dampers, I'd say almost every functional vehicle needs some sort of really will benefit greatly from some amount of rebound damping. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that you're, if you think about it, your spring 
is just a mechanical device that's made there to store energy, temporarily store energy. So um, when you hit a big bump, you put a bunch of energy into that spring as it compresses. And then rather than just let it dissipate, you just like dissipate, just like a pogo stick, just like jumping up and down on a pogo stick like a kid, having something to re- to dissipate some of that energy, not all of it, but just some of it mm-hmm. has some real benefit. What What would that benefit be? not getting ejected over the bars and losing your teeth. There you go. That's, most likely. <laughs> that's yeah. Boy, there's that, that's, that gets missed in a lot of the marketing, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a nice benefit. I yeah. mean, it's one that I think I, I, I yeah, I prefer. Really. Hey, I'm, a, I'm a fan of my teeth. I like them. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Big time. I don't like dental work at all, no, actually. No. <laughs> I don't even like brushing my teeth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> more sophisticated dampers have compression damping and that's most mountain bike stuff. And again, because on a mountain bike, you have such a heavy rider and the rider is such a big component of the, of the overall vehicle weight. Mm-hmm. You're having some sort of compression damping is, is, is pretty important and, and pretty valuable. And so you won't find many mountain bike dampers outside of say a big box store that don't have some sort of rebound damping, let alone some kind of compression damping. And usually in the, common damper architectures that exist today, which are all essentially, essentially similar. Um, you have, it's pretty easy to have both compression and rebound damping without a significant increase in cost. So, um, so and compression damping is useful, um, in really helping dissipate some of the energy that happens when you have a big heave move moment, move, uh, movement. So for example, when you go through a geo, um, and, you know, a big G out, you know, you can, we call it a G out because it's a gravity out. It's like saying, Hey, the gravity, the bike thinks that gravity is just increased. Right. Mm-hmm. So that low speed compression damage can really in slow movements kind of keep things from going, going through the travel too quickly. And then again, having so much energy built up in your spring on this really slow buildup and then somehow ejecting on, out on the other side. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and from there we can get, you know, it gets more complex. Yeah, right. Um, so this is the easy stuff we're talking about. Well, it's the, the basics of it. Yeah. I mean, it's not, yeah. Depends on, I guess it's easy. I, I don't find any of this easy to do. I, mean, I think the more I've learned, I realize I know nothing. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. No, I, I feel like I know <laughs> nothing about this already. I thought I knew something, but apparently I don't. <laughs> well, oh man. I think yeah, you get to the point where you're really developing and building dampers and then you realize how little you really know. Right, right. Well, that's what, that's, what's incredible, incredible to me about all this discussion. You know, I've read a lot of articles about, you know, here's what suspension does. And, and the more I read it, the more I'm like, man, you really need, you really need a degree to understand some of these physics terms. And I feel like, uh, with a lot of the marketing and with a lot of the articles we've seen, people are talking about concepts that they don't truly understand. And I think, absolutely, and and that, that really makes it very difficult to go buy a bike and say, okay, well, do I need a DW link? Do I need a horse link? Do I need a single pivot? You know, all of these things are trying to achieve, the same end goal, which is to make the compression feel smooth all the way through. You don't want that bottom out feel. And it's all about control and, and what, like having fun on your bike, right? So, you know, and, and I'm sure people get sick of hearing this, but really you have to go out and just ride the bikes and, and feel which ones are, you know, feel best to you. Um, but a basic understanding of what's happening in your shocks is also, is also good. And it's also, um, I mean, if for nothing else, probably good for, you know, knowing when it's time to do some maintenance, um, you know, if there's a big clunk or something, but you know, 
as as much as things have changed and you know these compression dampers have gotten more sophisticated and the the travel has gotten longer and more useful some things have, have essentially stayed the same about suspension design over the years can you talk about some of the things that really haven't changed much since you know those those halcyon days of 1996 norba racing boy yeah and i don't think there's anything that's the same since then i mean we still have basic pivoting structure we have we have relatively rigid structures with pivots mm-hmm. we still use coil springs coil springs haven't changed right um say in general the basic materials and dampers haven't and, and bikes haven't you know changed dramatically i mean right. we still have carbon fiber we had that back in the 90s we still have most of the same aluminum alloys are used in the dampers same spring alloys have changed a little bit but nothing crazy you know mm-hmm. that's about it i'd say everything else is completely different from that interesting one of the things that 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 kind of caught my eye was uh, single pivot. So I remember riding like a Klein Mantra with a unified rear triangle, the single pivot design, and then you know a year, two, three years later, everybody said, "Oh, single pivot's terrible. It's just squishy and bouncy, and you can't control the suspension." And they went away from that. And now we're seeing single pivot again. Why are we seeing that again? Well, I think there's a couple things that are pretty interesting. I mean, first off, that Klein Mantra was a pretty inventive design for what it did. I mean, it was based on a my opinion, a completely flawed overall concept, but pretty darn good execution. They definitely uh, understood the basics of what they were trying to achieve, whether they did it empirically or calculably, I don't know. But mm-hmm. um, So that was a bit of an interesting one to, to bring up. But you know, the reality is we went from a time where we had triple chain ring, uh, front chain rings, um, which were unbelievably difficult to design for, especially with a single pivot. Um, not that it's uh, really any easier to with a multi-pivot, but at least it gives you a little bit more latitude to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, to the dreaded two-ring years, um, <laughs> and the two-ring years were the two rings were awesome for for the what we called at the time, you know, the free ride bikes or all mountain bikes, yeah. um, which have basically become today's enduro bikes. Uh, and they were great for that time because they had two purposes for their chain rings. One was the the small ring because these bikes weighed, you know. 35 pounds you're trying to pedal it up the top of some huge mountain and then you put it in the bigger ring your quote middle ring and go rip down the hill um loved that that was awesome because you could separate the you know you could separate climbing from descending Mm -hmm. um and so the big ring you really were just using for descending and on flat ground and the small ring was only used for climbing and so one thing that i don't think i don't know a lot of people truly understand yet is uh annex what is relative to gravity so if you change the linkage orientation in relation to gravity, you change how much anti-squat you have. Mm-hmm. And it so happens if you turn the linkage, uh, if you rotate the linkage, I'm looking at it with the front wheel from the right, front wheel at your right hand, rear wheel at your left hand. Okay. If you rotate the linkage counterclockwise in relation to gravity, uh-huh. anti-squat increases. Right. If you rotate it clockwise, it decreases, okay. which is awesome because if you use a bigger ring, anti-squat decreases. If you use a smaller ring, anti-squat increases. So we could almost balance out. And I, in fact, did balance out at that point in time, was calculably balancing out based on real-world riding situations, real-world you know, CG locations, saying, all right, what do you, what's the CG location when we're climbing? What's the chain ring size? How can we manipulate this thing to balance out the equation so it's perfect for all three, all three phases that we use? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Double ring, can't do that. Can't do that because you got a human in the equation, and the human almost invariably will choose the wrong gear for the wrong time. So it <laughs> sounds like most me. Of the people are riding the granny, <laughs> the little 28 tooth ring. Ah, oh, 28 12. Yeah, that seems about right for yeah. this fire road. Yeah. Let, me, let me rip this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, 
oh yeah. man so like and then the guy's like why why does my bike pedal like a pogo stick because right. like, you get 140 percent anti-squat right. like can you, if you just put it in the other ring you'll be perfect right you know right. yeah like so that you know human choice is, is to, to get by humans ruin and, everything let's be honest um, so hey, they, hey, human <laughs> sorry, I was going to say, so that Klein mantra yeah. with, um, with the, cause for those of you who don't know what, it, you know, you're, if you're listening to this, Google it, but the Klein mantra had a, um, a shock that was essentially, if I'm remembering this correctly, God, it's been so long since I wrote it's, is it completely vertical or is it completely horizontal? It's completely vertical, right? Oh, uh, it was super vertical, but they yeah. basically, they had a pivot location that was, super high up on the top too. Yeah. It was super far forward. I still have scars on my end. knees from that stupid pivot. I swear to God, I do. I, I used to oh, knock I my knees on I'm sure you do. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Yeah. But, but, um, uh. but, but it had a, it had a, 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 a shock that was essentially vertical, which increases the anti-squat. And, and that's, that's essentially what you were saying is, you know, that's, well, that's a- that was one of the successes essentially of the, the design. So that bike was a unified rear triangle bike, meaning the whole drivetrain was attached to the swing arm. Right. So if you think about that, how does, oh, this is one of my favorite bike industry. I have a, there's a couple awesome bike industry, just, I don't know what you call them, but they're just, just stuff that have been repeated. I think so long that people believe it. <laughs> and the first one is that somehow chain pull force is like this big compelling thing that somehow making this, making all kinds of stuff happen. Chain pull force. Oh, it's crazy. Chain totally growth. crazy. Chain, chain growth force. is another word. That yeah. I and the second one is, uh, the second one is, uh, I lost my second, I lost my train of thought on the pivot. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'll come back to that one. Okay. Bottom yeah. line is though, if you think about that client mantra, it's a URT. Yep. The chain pull yep. force is, only moving the chainstay, maybe some micro fraction of a millimeter. Like, so how exactly is the bike somehow functioning properly? Like, how is it, maybe not properly, but how's it not just totally extending or blowing through the travel? Right. Oh, my second one, right. You know, right. Pivot at the chain line. I've heard this so many times. Oh, yeah, you just put the pivot right at the chain line, balances everything out. Yeah, perfect. Go do it. <laughs> Great. Like, that's just asinine. It's just totally asinine. Yeah. Like, both of those things are completely asinine. And if you think about them in relation to that Klein Mantra bike, like it's a perfect example of a bike that existed before. I think both of these industry-wide, I don't know, repetitions mm-hmm. that, I mean, if you think about it in reality, like how could those things be true? Yeah. Yet this bike existed and functioned. Right, right. Can't be. That's yeah. why I say I thought it was kind of inventive, but whoever did it, yeah. because it, it clearly at least had, and I believe it was probably empirical from reading the IP on, surrounding it, but somebody like started moving stuff around and said, hmm, Something's going on here. Yeah. This seems to work okay. It doesn't really have anything to do with the shock orientation. It just has to do with the location of where that pivot was. Yeah. And for a URT, it, it worked pretty well. Now, a URT is a really flawed design right. in a lot of ways. Right, right. In a lot of ways. But for making a URT work, yeah, not the worst thing. Right. Dave, I'm guessing I'm, des- I'm guessing bike companies don't let you write a lot of marketing copy. Okay. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm, it's, it's not my it's not my focus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish they would. Hey, though. <laughs> I have this, uh, I don't know what I'll call it, but uh, open and open, honest, direct. I really like that. Yeah. I will say that I haven't met too many people in the world that really like that approach. Oh, I, <laughs> I love it. to go over so I, you want to, I want you to be the co-host <laughs> on the tech pod. <laughs> this is great. Uh, doesn't um, go over too well, but. All right. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Dave Weigel was because he's got a new product out. It's called the Message Fork. It's his new company is called Trust, 
And, and it's really unlike a lot of things that are on the market right now. It's a linkage fork rather than a telescoping fork. And, and it really speaks to what Weagle believes is the future of suspension. Um, and one of the things that's really neat about it is that it addresses the shortcomings of front suspension. And, and the biggest shortcoming, really, of front suspension is, uh, you know, you, you, when you brake, the fork dives. So his linkage fork uh, attempts to solve that, among other things. I mean, it, really what it is is about handling and tracking, um, which is really difficult with a telescoping fork because the suspension is always, you know, moving, even when you don't need it to be. Um, so I talked to, to Dave a little bit about what he thought uh, the future of suspension is going to look like, and he seems pretty content with what where rear suspension is. Um, and, and that sort of a, echoes a sentiment uh, that Daryl Voss, another designer, told me where he said, you know, once you start to see how good uh, rear suspension works, you start to notice how poorly front suspension works. Uh, so I asked Dave to give me some insight as to what he thought the future of suspension is and a little bit about his message fork. Are we going to see uh, suspension dramatically change in the next few years based on this idea that, um, you know, the telescoping telescopic fork is, is sort of not the best tool for the job, according to, to what you're telling me here? I mean, are we going to see rear suspension change based on that? Are we going to see telescopic forks remain but change dramatically? I mean, what's the future for suspension here? I mean, I can't predict the future for sure. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you what, I, I'd be more questioned if we're going to have bicycles with uh, suspension. And I think you're probably looking more at e-bikes than, than uh, pedal bikes. But, um, you know, I think on those e-bikes, we're probably talking, I, the more people that ride the Trust product will be like us. I mean, I, from my standpoint, I was the biggest opponent and the uh, biggest realist i think when it came to this product i didn't need to start a new company didn't want to start a new company specifically didn't want to start a new company sold my product companies so that i didn't have to do this anymore um it is what it is it's real it the the, the improvements are undeniable the product is the product and in, in all of my experience and you know with issue things like this with the e13 product when polycarbonate bash guards were just it was like oh that's that's ridiculous that's never going to work yeah you couldn't even buy a metal bash guard after that it wasn't even available Right. from any company right same thing goes with using anti-squat and rear suspensions on mountain bikes and reducing low speed compression values yeah it was fought initially there were big fights or big marketing campaigns lots of dollars spent against it reality is it's the way it's the only way it's it's the best way to do it it's it's what everybody does now um i think the same thing is probably going to happen with front suspensions we're seeing this on the motorcycle side i mean hey listen what futuristic motorcycle design have you ever seen from anybody that had a telescopic fork on it like pretty much nothing and that's just the dreamers. Like now that the realists can actually ride it and feel the difference, it's uh, I think pretty much undeniable. I don't think we'll see big rear suspension changes. Uh, it doesn't require that. Um, it might. It's certainly I think going to change the balance of travel front to rear. I mean I think the whole notion of running more front fork, uh, more front you know travel is kind of laughable. It's something we do only on mountain bikes and no other vehicle, no other. Um, you know, no other uh, vehicle really has that. Um, I think that'll probably go away. I think there's probably going to be some front end geometry advancements that we can make based on that. I mean, from, from a designer standpoint, now all you have to care about is where do I want the contact patch and where do I want my rider's hands? And you don't have to worry about doing something weird with the head angle and making some chopper bike to get the feel that you want mid travel. Right. Um, I think that helps a lot under climbing. I think one of the things we've learned from a lot of the people that have, 
you know, really purchased the product, product and ridden the trust product is how much it's changed how they climb. Um, and I'm not a, you know, I mean, we did obviously we tested the thing in every conceivable, every conceivable, uh, you know, method. But um, it wasn't something that from our team really jumped out as like, oh wow, this is like a big improvement that we really like, really are focused on. Um, because the, the improvements were so huge on the stability side of things that we kind of, it just kind of got overshadowed in our minds, but a lot of people have commented on that one. So I don't know what that really will change from a chassis standpoint, but yeah. yeah. So Dave, before we, before we wrap up here, I know, you know, you've kind of made it, you've made it pretty clear that, you know, some of the stuff that we hear about suspension is, is just marketing and, and, um, that, that tends to sort of confuse the conversation about uh, suspension when people are buying bikes. What do you want to leave people with here uh, in terms of wh what do you want people to know about suspension before they go out and buy their bike? Aside from just hop on and ride it, you know, what's, what's the, the, the message to, so to forgive the pun, what's the message here that you want to leave people huh. with? Yeah. This is, this is a good question. I, I think the biggest thing is just don't get down in the weeds. Don't read some marketing thing. Don't assume that the website that you're reading isn't somehow connected via an advertising agreement with the companies whose product you might be considering. Like, don't keep it simple. Go out, set up your air pressure, set up your sat. Take the time to do that. It's not hard. If you can't, just take 10 minutes to set up their sag. It'll help. At the worst, if you can somehow set up your rebound damping to the point where you're not getting ejected off the bike, and it's also not just getting completely stuck down on the travel, you know, just do a bounce, a seat bounce on the bike and watch your shot go up and down. If it goes up one and a half, up and down one and a half times, you're probably close enough. Do those two things. You're probably going to be good. Choose a bike from a major brand, one that probably has a warranty, like, you know, something that, you know, that will give you some support over time. Um, you know, ride a couple things, buy what your buddy has. If that's what makes you happy, who cares? It's kind of hard to buy a bad bike today. You know, I mean, get out there, choose, don't run your tire pressure at 60. That's not helping you. Like <laughs> at least run it at 26 or lower, uh -huh. you know, like 40 PSI is not an option. Just don't do that. Right. Get a bigger, meatier tire with more knobs. Less is not the answer. You know, those types of things are going to let you have fun out there. Those are the things that are really going to benefit you. You know I mean? The goal here is to get out, have fun and ride and the technology, although it's, it's cool and it's fun. You know, a lot of times it takes away from the, takes away from the experience, mm -hmm. you know, personally, and this is my just personal thing. I, I would go for things with fewer knobs. Like I think knobs are just a lot of times marketing features. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, unless you're really doing like long fire road climbs or riding your mountain bike on the road. Yeah. Maybe the most compelling product choice decision doesn't have to revolve around whether a lockout lever is functional or not, or uh, I'm going to say functional, but even there, like, whatever, you know, I mean, do you really need that? Like how much are you willing to compromise for that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's it. All right. The message is ditch the knobs. No, ditch the knobs and keep it simple. You know, keep it simple. Great. Dave, that's, that's great information. Thank you so much for, uh, for joining me on the Velo News Tech Pod. Um, guys, that was a really, uh, deep episode with lots and lots of technical, technical terms and such like that. So if you have questions, 
please don't hesitate to reach out to me on Twitter at Brown Tie Dan or comment on our Facebook page. And please do like this podcast and share it. That would be wonderful. Uh, Dave, thanks again for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Hey, it's all my pleasure, Dan. Thank you for ha- having me on. And I hope I didn't uh, misspeak and um, become the uh, focus of a bunch of internet memes or something now <laughs> and see how it goes. <laughs> direct, direct all your angry emails to somebody else. That's not me, people. Got it? Uh, no, Dave, that was great. Thanks thanks for the plain speak. It's refreshing in the bike industry to hear somebody say it, say it and, uh, and, and say hey, it loud. I really appreciate it. So uh, thank you guys for joining us this week, and uh, we will catch you guys on the next Vela News Tech Podcast. Yeah.